0: What's up, folks? Welcome to another episode of the podcast here, or video if you're watching the video version. I have another guest with me today. We are very lucky and honored to have Brian Childress with us today. Uh, Brian, if you would like to go ahead and introduce yourself, that'd be great. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you, Peter. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, my name is Brian Childress. I'm located in Virginia in the United States, and I work as a fractional CTO. So I get to work with a lot of different companies and help them to build out their software stacks
0: very nice very nice and in virginia as well very nice yeah i'm here in texas so i'm a little jealous right now so we're going to dive into some conversation here Um, we've got a few topics we're going to go through i think all of these are very relevant to uh, the development community because uh, as developers a lot of the time we have to perform many different roles wear many different hats and you know we're going to go into a few of these things here Now, one of the topics I want to start with here is, as we were going through and I'm looking at the notes, and this one sounds really nice. Simple software always wins. Now, I'll start by saying, as developers, we are guilty sometimes of taking simple things and finding very complicated ways to deal with them. (laughs) Brian, would you like to talk about that?
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Peter. As engineers, as developers, I think part of the reason that we get into the industry and we continue to stay in the industry is because it allows kind of build something from nothing. And being able to put together software to solve different problems is it's just a very fun and exciting career path to have. Uh, It's certainly why I've been in the industry for well over 15 years. Uh, But I think it's the biggest challenge that I find for folks is limiting themselves and holding back from building too much or too complex and and really sticking to what is simple. And ultimately, simple is the thing that solves the business problem that allows us to serve the business and continue to keep us employed.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes we lose perspective as we're working on something and we become so obsessed with how we are doing it and what we're using to do it and to solve the problem rather than actually forgetting that it's really about the end solution and that is the problem we're solving. And sometimes what I try to do, if I feel like I'm heading in that direction or people that I'm working with, I hold up the stop sign and say, okay, let's work this from the other end. Let's go from the end result backwards. This is where we need to be. How do we get there? Rather than that, that kind of Okay, as developers and product makers or company makers, we know we have the skills and and we cannot help sometimes but overdo it. I can do this, so I should use this skill as opposed to what does this problem require?
1: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more.
0: All right. Yeah. So we we're going to we're going to try here. And, And talking about is sort of development skills. And for you as being a, as you describe a non-technical founder. Now, how does that work and how, how do you approach interfacing with the the technical aspect of business and building products and communicating with those folks who, who live in that technical layer that don't necessarily understand some of the business concepts that, you know, as a founder, how you see them and how you have to approach them
1: yeah it's a good question um, and i think it's, it's always important to approach a conversation with the understanding or our perception of what the other person's uh, biggest concerns are what are their fears what are the things that they're looking to gain the the conversation or the interaction and so for me i have the opportunity to work with a lot of non-technical founders i would say largely most people that i work with are non-technical founders they have a lot of business knowledge. Uh, they're really subject matter experts in their field. And they have an idea for you know, some sort of software or an app that can help improve you know, how they operate day to day. And ultimately, they think that there's an opportunity in the market. And I think yeah. that, for, yeah. for me, it's important to understand that where is the business coming from? Uh, and then how do I translate that to my technical counterparts? like we were talking about before around simple software, always driving it back to the business value, but still allowing for some creativity and innovation for the developers. Because as a developer myself, I really understand and appreciate the desire to want to build something. And just being able to keep that in control, I think is one of my biggest challenges But I think once we we have a shared understanding of what's important and what the business drivers are, then we can certainly innovate and we can certainly bring in new frameworks and uh, solve problems in interesting ways. We just have to look a little bit deeper for what those problems are. And they may not be a surface level type of solutions.
0: And also, I think as well, trying to look forward, right? So you may have an idea for a product or something like that. We start out we, we plan these ideas and we start moving forward. But also how about being prepared, you know, the software industry where we use this agile process where, you know, hey the path, the path may change as we're going along and learning to adapt and, and progress forward with that uh, as you make new discoveries as well, right? Because we can't necessarily plan everything ahead of time and there's always those roadblocks that come up that says hey you may want to do this but it might not be right for the product or maybe the audience for the product right could change over time as well
1: oh absolutely and i would almost expect it to change over time and i think our job as technical leaders is to understand where the potential is for some of those changes Uh, so that we can make sure that we have the ability to change in the future if the need ever arises i think i I spend a lot of time talking with both technical and non-technical founders around this we talk a lot about scale and every founder thinks that they're going to be the next google on day one and so i always have to dial that back a little bit without crushing their dreams but giving them the reality of how do applications typically scale and the nature of their application? How do I expect that to scale? And what levers and knobs do we have to work with as we're building out our solution?
0: That's interesting. So it's almost, would you say, like setting milestones, right? Okay, the end goal might be the next Google, but as you say, it's like, we all want it. Very few of us get there, right? There's only one Google, for example, but um it's okay to have that as kind of the, the long-term end of the timeline, the project goal. But are you suggesting that it's good to, to have these milestones in between a set of stairs, right? Just moving up slowly. So maybe you start with, hey, if we get 100 users for this, great, let's celebrate that, for example, and then... <laughs> move on from there, something like that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's celebrating those small wins, keeping an eye on that long-term prize, and just application and software tend to grow and evolve in new and interesting ways. Uh, So just being agile and being able to to work and change as necessary, I think is probably one of the more valuable skills a development team can have.
0: Interesting, yeah, and I feel as a role, as a founder, and something like that, to also keep some of those in, some of that sort of in check reality, right? Which is, yes, we all know that if you ask a developer, can you do this? Uh, They're going to say yes. (laughs) We'll always—it's that thing of yes, we'll always find a way. But to sometimes you you have to look at it, and you, we need someone for us to say to us and remind us that. And just because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should. And also, to do you feel that part of your role there is to prevent that that inevitable scope creep that we all have? You have that bright spark of an idea along the way. But if you don't get your MVP in, for example, you know, you could have a thousand great ideas. But if you don't ship the first one, the rest of them don't matter. Any thoughts on that?
1: No, I absolutely agree. And that's really why I like to really hammer the point of simplicity in software, because inevitably software will become complex. It's just a nature of the way things operate. So if we can start with the approach of being simple, then i found we have much better success in delivering a quality solution and having a, a, a completely scalable globally distributed mvp i've never found one that served an organization well so really just focusing on solving the pain points for the customer and then from that we always find interesting new engineering problems uh, around scaling and data distribution and all sorts of different things that we can start to then address when the time comes
0: yeah now talking about that I think that that probably comes very closely and, and we're going to ask you for a little bit of the some tips from behind the curtain here. So what about things like some I'm sure over time you've seen lots of things that we should avoid, learned that from the pain of you know, oh that didn't go quite so well, let's not do that next time. How about that for folks who are perhaps have these ideas to build products or SaaS uh, products, for example, are, are very much an in thin and very much in demand, but it's very easy to steer yourself in the wrong direction if it's not something that you're familiar with. Any thoughts and, and any tips there that you can give us to avoid the major pitfalls?
1: Yeah. I think at the end of the day, if your goal is to build a SaaS product that really solves a problem for users. I really like to focus on what is that SaaS product. And for a lot of founders that I work with, the first step in our discovery is to hire a designer to put together a clickable prototype for us. So this might be something in Figma or a similar program that I can go out to my potential customers and see if it's something that they are willing and interested in in purchasing. If we have enough adoption and interest from willing and Potential clients. Then I think it's at that point that we start exploring an MVP, and it may make sense to leverage some of the low code or no code tools as a next step in developing the MVP before we get to developing custom software. I think anytime that we're the typical build versus buy conversations of should we be building an authentication system or a payment processing system. Unless that's our core, uh, the core of our business, our core intellectual property, there's probably no value in actually building something that we can pay a monthly subscription fee to get the same access to functionality. So I really, I, I think that there's a lot of ways that we can go about this. But at the end of the day, in order for us to pay our server bills and developer salaries, we need a solution that customers are excited about using and are willing to come back to us time and time again um, and if we don't have that then we' we're, we're not going in the right direction I don't think
0: that's very interesting because uh, just recently uh, I've d- been done a couple of interviews with folks who provide no code tools and mm-hmm. uh, so for example for those folks who don't know how these systems work uh, a lot of the time these no code tools will interface to with your apis for what your system is and uh, that, that you can rapidly build and expand and scale these products. So it's it's always nice when I hear folks like yourself saying solve the problem that you need to solve. And uh, invariably, like you say, things like a login system, back-end storage, all of these kind of things, other companies have done this before. Th- there's nothing that says you can't do it, but I think sometimes we forget to ask ourselves the question of should we? Where Mm. does my time and my focus need to be? And invariably, like you say, it's going to be if we were brutally honest with ourselves, I don't need another login system. I don't need another classic example is is the websites side of Mm. I don't need another WordPress because WordPress exists. And a lot of the time, it is cheaper for me to, like you said, go pay to use a service than to burn more likely the more expensive developer hours to build that product. And then you get in that trap of building the product to build your product rather than just build your product, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah, couldn't agree more.
0: All right, and on that topic, something I want to ask about here is if you are lucky and this works for you and you reach that first milestone or you need help getting to that first milestone and now you need to expand any thoughts on hiring freelancers contractors third party companies and how to go about trying to figure out which one to hire things to look for that that you feel will help decide is this the right company for me to work with
1: that's a really good question. And my typical indicator of someone who understands the problem that we're trying to solve and is interested in helping partner in building the solution is someone that asks really good clarifying questions. If someone comes in, whether it's an individual freelancer or an agency, but they come in and they ask more and more questions to dive in deeper about what it is we're building, how we're solving the solution, and focusing on the business use case. That's to me is a really, really good indicator. The inverse of that, anytime that someone comes in and says, oh no, you need to be using DynamoDB and I don't know, AWS Athena, and just starts to spout out a lot of technologies and frameworks, At the beginning of the conversation, then I note that is not the right person for the project. I work with a lot of organizations, and I typically come in and turn around projects where someone had come in, a freelancer or an agency, and put in a lot of unnecessary technologies or proprietary frameworks that had been written. And ultimately, it left the business, the founder, the team in a really, really bad place. Uh, So, you know, anyone that comes in and asks the questions to help guide the discussion and the decisions that are made, I think that's someone that's really qualified that I want to continue to talk with deeper.
0: Yeah, folks, pay attention to what Brian's saying here because we've all been in that situation, right? Where someone will come in or you'll start talking to them, and you know, it's kind of that in a humorous way i guess you would say it's the oh you also read the blog post with the buzzword of the week right as opposed to yes you're coming in you're talking about you're asking questions about the problems i'm trying to solve not what i'm going to use to solve it that that is a very good tip because those questions will naturally come later on and you know, it's it's that thing of if I need someone to, to use an analogy here, if I need someone to translate something into French for me, if someone comes in and tells me, oh, I, I can speak 50 different languages, great, but I only need you to speak French <laughs> and coming in with an impressive resume, be it a company or a person or a service is all well and good on paper, but if you're not getting that vibe that says they understand me and they're curious about my problem, a definite warning sign, right? Because I think as well, we've all had that scenario uh, where people will come in and for example, for me as an app maker, and they'll say, I need you to make me an app. And of course, my first question is, okay, great. What do you need it to do? And then they say, I don't know, but I need an app.
1: Yeah. The number of those conversations that I've been a part of, and I'm curious if you've experienced the same, uh, where someone says, oh, I need an app, because that is what you know technology looks like for many people. Uh, and at the end of the day, a simple Google form or something along those lines was more than sufficient, something that they could self-manage and didn't require a very expensive custom development effort.
0: Yes this does happen to me. And and that's a very good example right there. Because when we break it down, especially with business apps, I think a lot of the time, you know, a major category is that basic, like you say, the, the CRUD form, right? Mm-hmm. I just need to gather something, store it, be able to get to it and manage it. And invariably, I think it would be fair to say, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but most apps or services really are about capturing data, managing it, and then invariably passing it off somewhere else or being used by something else. And that's a major part of business right there, right?
1: No, you're absolutely right. I've thought about that quite a bit and I haven't found an app that didn't quite fit into that that mold. I think most apps, uh, that's exactly what they're doing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and the beauty of that as well is, uh, going back to like we were saying in the conversation earlier, a lot of these no-code tools or you know, these structured services that are already out there have solved these problems in many different ways. And the question really becomes, which one do you use? And I think mm. that is a very much, in my opinion, a very much a per-project problem to solve, right? Because there is no one service fits all, right? If you're going to look to solve a solution by predetermining, you should use XYZ service. At that point, you're now trying to make the product fit that rather than it support the product. Along with that, something I'm curious about because everyone's talking about it these days, AI, right? And um, there's a lot of misinformation or misunderstanding, I should say, about AI. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how that plays into a lot of what we're talking about here because, again, that can solve some of these kind of standard problems, right? Those things that we all hear on projects or like we say, like the login system, right? AI, I've seen people build them by just telling AI, look, I need to do this. Any thoughts on where AI might play into these and machine learning over the next few years?
1: It's a really, really interesting space. And as a technologist, I've been in and around the area for several years now. and It's really exciting. And ChatGPT and some of the other generative AIs that have come out is incredibly impressive. The fact that I can go and ask a simple question and it understands full context and gives me a reasonable answer, I think is extremely powerful. And so as a developer, I use it all the time as a way to generate scripts or functions for maybe a language that I'm not necessarily working in day to day. And so for that, I think it's really, really powerful. Now, counter to that, I think there I also have a lot of concerns around some of the code that is generated. I think to a large degree, it's pretty good. It's really solid code. Um, My concern is more something similar that we saw when Stack Overflow uh, really came on the scene several years ago, and where developers would go, they would find something that looked like a potential solution, copy and paste it, and put it into our code base. Not really truly understanding what that code was actually doing. And I think AI is only expediting that process, it's just making it go much faster. And so my concern is that I think as more senior developers, we have to maybe be a little bit have a little bit more scrutiny on the code that's coming into our code base and how we leverage some of those tools. But again, I think it's a fantastic tool. The ways that I'm seeing businesses integrate with AI and machine learning is really, really impressive. And so now we're we're seeing a big shift toward really capturing and organizing and making sense of the data. That we've been collecting for years. And so I think we're going to continue to see more and more of that. As a developer, I have no concerns that AI is going to take over my job, (laughs) but I do think it is going to propel me forward. Uh, And so any developers that aren't necessarily leveraging those tools may start to fall behind.
0: Yeah, I think that it's it, it's a very interesting take that you have on it, and it's one that I agree with. In many conversations that I've had with folks, as I've been talking with folks on this podcast, for example, the, there's kind of two ways of seeing this. There's the like you say, AI is going to take my job away. I should hate it, and it, it's that thing of the horseless carriage all over. Or of you know, folks who take the the viewpoint that I feel I'm trying to adopt, which is these tools are there to help and assist and i think you're absolutely right it scares me how many people will take code from websites and just put it in and i know I'd be curious if this has happened to you i have seen code bases over the years and when i'm looking in there a classic example is i was working in a code base once and you could tell someone it just taken the code from some website somewhere and pasted it in because all of the comments were in French and none of us on the project spoke French. (laughs) So it was a bit of a giveaway. And I find it very scary when people do that because that's when you start to have security problems. And wherever you're getting your code from, be it AI, Stack Overflow, GitHub, wherever it is, if you don't truly understand what that's doing you may have just introduced a security flaw uh, something you can't maintain going forward because you never really learned what it did you just knew this solved the problem and i think that's something we need to educate ourselves and everybody else which is these are tools that will help you but don't just blindly trust them right because they are built with learning models from code that people like us write and and we don't always get it right ourselves
1: you're absolutely right absolutely
0: let's talk about going back and we're talking about hiring a talent here for, for any role whichever role it may be and it's a very common practice these days in the industry to hire offshore however that may look for you and you as a company and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or guidelines for folks there, because this is another area where it's it's difficult, right? Unless this is something you're used to dealing with. And if you're a founder with a new startup, something like that, or maybe this is the first time you've dived into this, you know, where do you start, right? The, I guess the first thing you do is you ask people you know <laughs> and see what they say. But how do we go? What's some of the... I don't want to say best practices, but some good common sense structure to how we go about looking at, say, hiring a company that may be on the other side of the world, something like that.
1: I think this is a topic that you and I could probably spend a couple hours uh, discussing. It's something I see a lot. I've had the great fortune of working with developers and agencies spread across the world. You know, it's not uncommon for me to be on a project where we have five or six different time zones at play. So we certainly see it quite a bit when he's looking to either work uh, following the sun, right, continuing to have folks uh, working on the platform 24 hours a day, or you know, as a way to save costs or have just a different access to different talent. Uh, I think in order for For it to be a successful endeavor, I think there's a few things to really consider. One, like you say, is finding someone, either an individual or an agency that has a good reputation. I don't know, I probably receive 15, 20 emails a week from different agencies who are looking to engage with me and my services. Uh, So there are a lot of folks out there that are trying to sell their development services. So finding someone who is reputable, that has delivered successful projects in the past, I think is really valuable. One of the other big areas that I think is important, but unfortunately gets missed a lot, is things around like ownership and milestones. So, for example, we'll see a lot of times where a founder may engage with a development agency and they start to to build whatever that app is or whatever that software they've come up with. But the development agency is hosting everything, and all of the code resides in the development agency's repositories. They manage all the passwords and secrets. And it comes to a point where that handover, that transfer of ownership can actually be a really sticky situation. And I've seen it go really bad. I talked to a founder a couple of weeks ago who had lost $100,000 because they no longer had access to the code that an agency had spent six months developing for them. Uh, so I think that's it's really unfortunate to see. Uh, so I, I think I like to work a lot with founders and just make sure that they're set up for success from the beginning. And a lot of that's around ownership and, again, uh, around milestones and being able to deliver good quality functioning software at a regular cadence. So be it every week, every two weeks, we should be able to see and interact with what that team or individual has been doing. Uh, I think those are really, really important.
0: I think that those are excellent points because there's a few in there that I find very scary to think about. And the funny thing is that there's a lot of hindsight in those. And I think probably once you've been burned by them, once you remember to make sure absolutely get them in the contract. Uh, like you say, for example, ownership of the source code, the deployment cycle, uh, manage. I, I guess the big one here is, yeah, access to whatever that may be, code base, servers, management of those things. If you are contracting someone in to come and build something for you, in my view, whilst it seemed easy for me to sit here and think, I brought that company in to make something for me, it's mine. And, and I should have ownership of that. And then, for example, they shouldn't be allowed to use it. Any proprietary, something that's built along the way is mine. And it's easy for you to think about it from your perspective like that, but it's crucial to make sure that understanding is there on both sides and in a way that both sides can be held accountable for,
1: right? Absolutely.
0: I want to revisit this idea of scale, and how does that look like, for example, let's take a SAS service. Let's say I got a SaaS company here, providing some services, any advice for those who have never had to deal with kind of the victims of their own success, right? We all want success and then you get it and suddenly you realize, okay, what do I do now? It, it went way better than I expected. And how do you deal or what's some good ways to think about dealing with that scale?
1: Yeah, I like that you asked this question. Um, so I typically think and talk about scale in three different ways. The first way is just adding more users to the system. And I think to your point, that's the main one when we hear the word scale, the one we think about. The second way that I think about scale is around adding new features to the platform. So how clean is the code base? How easy is it for me to extend or augment with new functionality and features? And then the third is scaling the number of developers or engineers on the platform. And so this tends to come in with uh, things like good onboarding and good CI/CD practices to be able to deploy code uh, efficiently and effectively, good tests and feature flagging and all of those sorts of things. But I think that to answer your question around how do I add more users, I again, focusing on simplicity, I'm always careful about introducing a new, more complex architecture as a way to solve the problem. And so for that initial period where things are going up and to the right and really being successful for the team, I think we just have to pay the money. All right. We have to buy bigger servers. We have to buy additional database servers uh, to be able to handle the additional load. All right. If we focused on solving the business problems, the business should be doing well enough that we can continue to support our cloud hosting bill for um, that period of time. Now, it's certainly something that we really want to focus on and make sure that we're mitigating and addressing quickly. Uh, So typically, the areas that we feel the most pressure around scale is at the data layer. So what does our database look like? Do we need to do any sort of uh, sharding, any sort of additional replication, moving to a read-only infrastructure? Um, So... It's interesting that once software is written and it's out there in the hands of users, it grows in new and interesting ways. And it will tell us where it's feeling that pain, you know, whether it's at the networking layer, or the data layer, um, application, you know, web servers. So we can start to really address those issues once we can identify where is that pain point happening. And then there are a lot of different levers to pull. But I always caution teams from adopting a complex architecture, say microservices, for example, right out of the gate, because that brings its own level of complexity that even if we are scaling, it may not be the solution to the scale that we're seeing. Uh, so just caution teams from adopting something that, again, is in trend, is buzzworthy, you know, it looks great on our resume, but ultimately may not be the thing that best serves the business.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, it's almost a case of it's being remembered for what you built, not all the tools you use to get there, and I, something in there the sort of piggyback off of that that I find, I have to, I say to folks more times than I feel like I should is, hey, you've got all of these services pulling in all of this these metrics, this data, but are you stopping to look at them <laughs> and and to learn? Mm-hmm. You know, so many times I've encountered folks, and they're like, okay, hey, I see. X amount of users coming in using this service. But I seem to get very little conversion to, for folks who want to sign up and use the service. And I don't understand why. And then you ask them, it's like, D- did you look at the data? Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe there's something that's failing and they're dropping off at the same point in the process every time. But if you don't use and analyze that data you've got coming in to tell you, you're just guessing mm-hmm. at that point. So that, that's very interesting. Very conscious of our time here. Is there anything that I haven't covered that you'd like to cover?
1: I don't think so. You've asked some really fascinating questions, so I really appreciate the time.
0: Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Brian has given us a lot to think about today, folks. And please, go away. Think about this, right? If need be, stop. Now, Maybe if you're a company or you're a team, take a day and stop building and stop and say to yourselves, okay, let's look at what we're doing. And let's talk about this. So Brian, I want to thank you for joining me today and giving you our time. Um, But please tell folks where they can come and avail themselves of your services, where they can find you and uh, take advantage of this wealth of knowledge that you've been giving us.
1: Yeah, thank you. I'm most active on LinkedIn. So feel free to find me on there, Brian-Childress. I answer all my DMs and accept connection requests. So I'm always excited and interested in uh, helping teams and companies out uh, with their software solutions. So thank you. Great,
0: great, thank you. Yeah, folks, it is crucial. This goes right back to the heart of what we were talking about earlier, right? If this is something you're not comfortable with, Go speak to Brian. Take advantage of his knowledge and his skills and let him help you out. So, yeah, reach out to him.